Today we are talking about a man most people have never heard of, but we should know him. We owe Western society to this man. Everything that we value here in the West came from the life of this one man. Freedom, the value of every life, helping the poor, protecting children, all things that seem obvious in our society today. But there was a time when Western society didn't have those values. While today we argue about what's the best way to take care of the poor, there was a time when no one thought it was even necessary to take care of the poor. They believed if they were rich, that was because God loved them. And if you were poor, it was because, well, God must have wanted you to be poor. No one cared about children. As young as six years old, children worked for up to 14 hours a day, often in extremely dangerous situations. Sexual abuse was everywhere. Alcoholism was out of control. 25% of the unmarried women in London were prostitutes. The average age of a prostitute was just 16 years old. If that was the average age, you know there were many girls younger than 16. Babies born to the prostitutes would often be just left outside to freeze to death. It was a godless society. The few Christians were praying that God would raise up a man to lead the country to truth. And God was about to answer that prayer. Welcome back to Church History. I'm your host, Loralee Siemens. I hope you had a great weekend. Today, we're talking about a man I wish I had known about growing up. I learned about him just a few years ago when I read Eric Metaxas' book, Amazing Grace, a book, by the way, I highly recommend. Do you ever think about the slaves in Egypt who are praying for a miracle? God had sent them Moses, but when he was a baby, he almost died. Then he was taken to live with Pharaoh. Then, as an adult, he had to flee, and he didn't return to free the slaves until he was 80 years old. God was in the process of answering the prayers of the slaves for 80 years. But while God was working, the lives of the slaves only seemed to get worse. I'm sure it felt like God had forgotten about them. It definitely didn't seem like God was working, and a miracle was about to happen. It was the same way with this story. During this time, the slave trade was essential to the English economy. England didn't see the slave trade. They just saw the wealth. The sugar brought in a lot of money, and the rich were getting even richer. The three harbors, Liverpool, Bristol, and London, would be the three harbors where the ships would be loaded with cargo of manufactured goods. Ships would then leave the ports and head to the west coast of Africa. Here they would exchange their goods for slaves. The slaves were prisoners, usually from wars. Tribes would fight and take their prisoners of war and sell them to the English ships in exchange for their manufactured goods. Sometimes the slaves were people 
who had been captured by those working the slave trade. Both Africans and English would capture innocent people and sell them in the slave trade. Those who were captured would be tortured before being sold. That way, they would be submissive to their captors. The area on the ships where the slaves were held was the size of a coffin. The ships had been built to hold hundreds of slaves in these small, confined spaces. Most ships carried between 400 and 500 slaves. One ship, the Brooks, carried 609 slaves. The trip was long. They were forced to stay in the cramped area for the entire length of the trip. The smell was so bad, you could smell a slave ship for a mile away. The heat was so extreme, and mixed with the cramped quarters, the smell, the diseases, and the seasickness, many slaves would go insane. If a slave started to act insane, They were thrown overboard. You see, a slave lost to the sea would be reimbursed by insurance companies. So if it looked like a slave was going insane and they knew they would not be able to sell them, they would throw them overboard for the insurance money. They did the same thing to any slave who looked like they were sick. Sexual abuse was also rampant on the ships. Women were treated horribly and many were pregnant when they arrived in the West Indies. During the years of the transatlantic slave trip, ships carried so many people that it would be the largest movement of people until the Second World War. The slaves would be brought to the West Indies to the sugar plantations. Molasses and sugar would be brought back to England as raw material. It would be processed and then sold. The elitists of London didn't see the slave ships or the sugar plantations in the West Indies. What they saw was a booming economy, the treats in the store windows from the sugar, and the delicious tea they drank with sugar. Anyone who spoke about ending the slave trade was seen as ridiculous. Why would anyone try to stop the thing that was letting them all live the good life? The elitists of London didn't see any reason to end the slave trade, just like they didn't see any reason to end prostitution, or child labor, or the horrible living conditions of the poor. The church had become a social club. There was no call to repentance or to live a life for Christ. Except for a group that had become known as the Methodists. They met in homes or sometimes even in fields. We've talked about the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield in past episodes. They were preaching and people were changing. But the people, once they became Christians, suddenly started living differently. They stopped drinking, kept sexual relations with only husbands and wives, and fought to end child labor. In England, they also fought to end the slave trade. We call this time the Great Awakening. The elitists in society saw these people as extremists. They were hated and seen as a dangerous cult. The Christians prayed that God would change society, end the slave trade, and make living a pure life the stylish thing to do. That seemed impossible and would take a miracle. On August 24, 1759, God answered their prayers. But just like the time of Moses, the people didn't know that God was answering their prayers. August 24, 1759, in the city of Hull, a wealthy family welcomed their third child, a little boy. They named him William. The Wilberforce family was a wealthy merchant family and they had plans for their son. 
They were going to raise him to be part of the elite society. Robert and Elizabeth were well respected in the city of Hall. They named their little boy after Robert's father, William, who was the mayor of Hall. The family owned a sugar refining company. The old sugar house was on Lime Street and gave work to many people in the area. Because sugar was the biggest trend at the time, it made the Wilberforce family extremely wealthy. The raw sugar came from plantations in the West Indies, the same plantations where the slaves worked. While little William or anyone else in his family never saw a slave, they made their family fortune off the backs of slaves. They never saw themselves as participants in the slave trade, and yet they were. This is the way most of the rich in England lived. They profited from the slave trade without ever seeing it. William, at age seven, was a very small, sick child. He had extremely bad eyesight and was often sick. He was sent to school at age seven, the whole grammar school. The school was led by a man named Joseph Minor. Mr. Joseph Minor was a great teacher. He was energetic and had a way of running a school that made school fun. He was also a secret Methodist. While the elite parents sending their children to school would have been appalled to learn their children were being taught by a Methodist, the students loved him. William and Mr. Minor had a great relationship. Later in his life, when William was an adult and Mr. Minor was no longer a secret Methodist, but a leader in the evangelical movement, the two would become lifelong friends. Although William struggled with his health, he enjoyed life. He loved school and his very sheltered life. However, when William was just nine years old, tragedy struck the family. In one year, both his older sister and his father died. Then his mother became extremely ill. The family had to decide what to do with William. Because he was such a tiny, sickly child, his mother, who was a grieving widow and sick herself, could not properly care for him. His mother and grandparents decided to send him to live with a very wealthy aunt and uncle. This aunt and uncle were extremely wealthy. They owned homes in St. James Place, London, and Wimbledon. They were the type of people politicians visited to help fund campaigns. That kind of rich. William was sent to live with them. What his family did not know was that his aunt and uncle were Methodists. They had become Christians at one of the revival services and were now dedicating their lives and their fortune to the evangelical movement. Little William loved his uncle, William, and Aunt Hannah. He very quickly became part of their family, and he saw them as his mom and dad. He was fascinated by the church services. It was nothing like the church services he had attended back home. He loved the singing and the preaching. The preacher was a man named John Newton. He was very good friends with Uncle William and Aunt Hannah and was in their home often. One day, John Newton talked to William about sin. What sin was? Doing, saying things, or even thinking things that broke God's laws. John Newton also talked about grace. He talked about God's grace to forgive sins, even the very worst sins. One day, John Newton told William about his own sins. He told him about how he'd been the captain of a slave ship for five years. And he told him 
about the horrible conditions of the slaves. He told them what the sugar plantations were really like. Little William was horrified to learn that any person would be treated so horribly. As John spoke, this large man sitting next to this tiny boy, his shoulders began to shake, holding back the tears. They still haunt me, William. The 2,000 slaves I shipped like cattle. They still haunt me. We have to end the slave trade. It has to end. Another man that Uncle William and Aunt Hannah were good friends with was a man named George Whitfield. He was a preacher who we talked about in past episodes. William spent three years with his aunt and uncle, George Whitfield, and John Newton. It was an amazing time for a young boy to learn about God. But his mother and grandfather found out his family was involved with the revivals and were horrified. They thought they had sent him to live in a home where he would be groomed to be an elitist. But they had sent him to what they viewed as a scary cult. At age 12, William was sent back to live with his family. His aunt and uncle told him if he prayed and read his Bible, he would not forget God. At age 12, William made it his goal to live for God and not forget what he had learned. But back home, his parents forbid him from reading the Bible or attending any church at all. They laughed at the silly idea of ending the slave trade. If they ended the slave trade, who would harvest the raw sugar? It was an insane idea, something only a stupid old pastor would dream up. They made sure he attended parties and was in the presence of the most elite in society. They mocked the extremist Methodists and gave little William everything he wanted. He soon was a spoiled teenage elitist. In 1776, his grandfather died and left his fortune to William. Three years later, his uncle died, and he also left his money to William. At age 17, William was an extremely wealthy, independent young man heading off to college. He had nothing to do with God or the church. He loved to drink and party, and everyone wanted to party with him, and all the girls wanted to be with him. At this time, the more bad you could do, the better respected you were. The Prince of England once boasted about the number of girls he had dated, and his number was over 2,000. William loved his life, the parties, the drinking, the girls. College was going to be great. It seemed like his mother and grandmother and grandfather had raised the boy the way they wanted. And the words of God that had been planted by John Newton and his aunt and uncle had long been forgotten. But when a seed is planted in a child, God doesn't forget. What that seed needed was someone to come along with some water and water the seed. And then, the miracle many people were praying for would indeed happen. College was one big party for William. He became best friends with the Prime Minister's son, William Pitt. The two spent their time playing cards, gambling, drinking, and being with women. He was a very small man, but he was fun. He was smart, and he knew how to make people laugh. He was the type of guy you could have fun with at a party, and the next day have a philosophical debate about life. While William was in school, one of the worst slave ship incidents happened. 
It was so bad it even made the paper, and the people of England were suddenly shown just a glimpse of what they had refused to see. The ship was called the Songship. It had 442 slaves on board, but it had only been built to carry 200 slaves. The slaves that would normally have an area the size of a coffin to travel in had two people per space. The ship was headed to Jamaica. The trip lasted longer than was expected, and the crew realized they were going to run out of drinking water. If slaves died on board, or arrived too sick to sell, they would make no money. But if they lost the slaves overboard, they can claim insurance. 130 slaves were taken to the deck and forced overboard. The insurance company took the captain to court, saying it was mass murder disguised as an insurance claim. The courts sided with the captain, telling the insurance company to pay up. The insurance company then took the case all the way to the Supreme Court. Lord Mansfield was the judge. He believed that any form of slavery was actually illegal in English court. The trial was known as Gregson versus Gilbert. The judge was willing to take the case, but in the end, the insurance was never paid out, and the matter was eventually dropped. While people were calling for the captain and the crew to be tried for murder, they were never tried. But while they were not tried in the courts, they were tried in the court of popular opinion, and people were angry about what had happened. It was the first time people began to learn just how bad the slave trade was, and where their sugar was coming from. William was in school during this time, and his memories of talking to that old slave captain turned preacher came back to his mind. The other extremely important thing that happened at this time was the American Revolutionary War. That took place from 1755 to 1783. William was invited by his friend to visit Parliament where his father worked and see what was happening. Both Williams loved the passion, the fighting, and the debating that they saw. Remember, they visited Parliament during the Revolutionary War. Imagine seeing the English Parliament debating during this time. It must have been amazing. Both Williams decided they should go into politics. While the boys were still in school, they decided being a politician would be fun. At that point, you literally bought your seat. You paid people to vote for you. William paid £8,000 to be voted into Parliament as a member of Parliament of Kingsington in Hall, his childhood home. Since he was now so wealthy, the price was easy for him. He went into Parliament as an independent, and he worked with whoever he wanted to work with. The parties at the time were the Tory and the Whig Party. William was the most popular young man in town, literally. The sociolite Madame de Stael wrote in an article that William Wilberforce was the wittiest man in all of England. He made any party the social must-go-to party simply by attending. And he could sing. Often at parties, he would just break out into song. One day, the Prince of Wales said he would go to whatever party Wilberforce will be singing at. William Pitt was also a politician, and the two were still amazing friends. In 1783, the pack of friends, William Wilberforce, William Pitt, and another one of their friends, Edward Elliot, took a six-week party tour of Paris. They met Benjamin Franklin and General Lafayette. He's the French general who helped win the War of Independence for America. 
They also meant Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI. The three were suspected of being English spies, since English and French were constantly at war with each other. However, even the French loved the young men, and they were even invited to visit the court. In 1783, William Pitt decided to run for the office of Prime Minister. A crazy thing to do. The boys had not even graduated college yet. William Wilberforce became his main supporter. And the shock was that Pitt won, making him the youngest Prime Minister in English history at age 24. To this day, he still holds that record. October of 1784, William's mother was sick again. He decided that visiting France would help her get better. So he took a trip. A man would join them on this trip. And that man would water the seed that had been deeply planted in the heart of William. William's plan was to have fun, party it up, enjoy everything elitist society had for him to enjoy. But God had a different plan, a completely different plan. And there was a miracle that was about to happen. Next week, we will have part two in the story of William Wilberforce. If you enjoyed this, make sure you subscribe. That way you'll know when I put part two up. In the meantime, if you'd like to listen to more podcasts, read my blog, or check out some videos, go to lauraleesiemens.com.